Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Fenners. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Cyclone, Edward Dyson. To be more like Edward, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. His back is strong, his beard is thick. Wonders what makes people tick. Joe Marler and his show. Joe Marler, here we go. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Well, hello to you, Joe. Tom. Yes. How many sheds have you got in your garden? We've got one shed. I don't like opening the door because as soon as I open the door, stuff falls out and hits you in the face. What do you put in this shed? I don't put much in there. I can't go in. There's no more room. I immediately just assumed that you'd had a robot in there. <laughs> yeah. And that robot... Your classic that... robot in the shed. No, <laughs> <laughs> that robot, that, that robot clip that you used on our live tour. Oh, yes. The one that was trying to feed a mannequin a crisp and then... Boosh. To poof, 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 poof. <laughs> I immediately pictured that being a real thing in yeah. your... And that's With a crisp or holding something from inside the shed, like a rake or a hoe or a surfboard. Just like a generic claw <laughs> just hitting you in the face. So it's actually less to do with a shed and just more in your head, something's hitting me in the face with a claw. No, that's that's what's come about. I was just trying to do, like, how many sheds have you got? Like a new sort of okay. weekly... Well, uh, you need to sing it like a jingle. How many sheds have you got in your house? How many sheds have you got in your garden? How many sheds have you got? One. Cool. Thanks for that. Let's get a guest on. No, but how many sheds have you got, Joe? How many sheds have I got? How many sheds have you got, Joe? I've got, I'm getting one built. You're getting one built? Is it big? Yeah. Well, I bought one, 12 by 8, about six months ago. Materials? Wood. Felt roof? I think so, but this is the thing. I bought it online and I just presumed it would come built. And it hasn't. So when I came home from work, there's just this fucking giant box. Oh, and you struggled with the erection? On the drive. And I do not struggle with that, Tom. Thank you. Is the shed built? No. So you have struggled with the erection. Okay, but I don't know how... Do you know how to build a shed? Yeah, put one side against the other, then the other side, then the other side, pop the roof on. Are you going to have power in your shed? Uh, the shed is for my sauna and ice tub. You're going to have a sauna and ice tub? I'm going to have a sauna in there. I'm going to have an ice tub in there. Listen, Joe, I've yet to visit your house. You're not welcome. I'm aware of that, but uh, if you install both a sauna and an ice bath, I will come over. Yeah, but you're not allowed in the house. That's fine, I'm not bothered. Cool. Because if it's cold outside, I'll go back in the sauna. If it's too hot outside, I'll get in the ice bath. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify or Patreon. This is a duet, Tom, so you're next up. For a pound a week, you can get bonus content, add free episodes, and you'll be... Growing. growing. You pra- sing it. What, what do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> growing the show. 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 Yeah, ready. And at, and at the same time, you'll be growing. You start oh. too late. Another words now. Go. And at the same time, you'll be growing the show. <laughs> Why couldn't we do it? That was so bad. If we grind the show, you fucked it up. And if you want, you can listen ad free on Amazon Music. See you, guest on. Our guest today is Ryan. And he is a neuroscientist. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Joe. Tom. Brief word of explanation, Joe. This is Ryan, but it's not Ryan. No, not producer Ryan. No. This is neuro. Oh no, neuro. Neuro. Now that I've looked at this, 
word on paper, neuro, neuro. Neuro. It's neuro, isn't it? Neuro, yeah. Neuroscientist. But you need a y in there, not neuro. What neuro, am I saying? Neuro. Oh, a ny. Try it. Neuro. Yeah. Neuroscientist. Ryan, the neuroscientist. Um, well, I'm glad we've cleared up the, the thing is, but to probably clear up, can we call you Dr. Ryan? Are you a doctor? I'm technically a doctor, not a medical doctor. How can you technically be a doctor but not a medical doctor? PhD, not MD. So, no medical emergencies, but if you need me to do some pipetting, I'm good. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) What is a neuroscientist, Dr. Ryan? So, it's pretty diverse, right? So, it might be neuropsychology, clinical neuroscience, behavioural neuroscience... Myself, I'm cellular molecular neuroscience. I'm interested in what happens in the brain, in cells, in nerve cells, what goes wrong, and particularly in neurodegenerative diseases. Okay, so if you were to look at um, Joe Marlow opposite the table, what exactly is going on in his brain? It's a question that no one has, until this point, ever been able to answer. I'm not sure that's answerable, really. Maybe stick him in an MRI scanner, see what's going on. Fuck off. No, claustrophobic. Unless you're giving me at least... 900 millilitres of Oromorph and a couple of Zoplicones crushed in that drink. What else should we put in there? Smarties. Smarties? <laughs> You've got too much of everything There's else. There's no way I'm getting in an MRI scanner. Not a chance. So, neuroscientist, yes. it's all about the brain. Yeah, pretty much. Brain, nervous system. So, brain, spinal cord, peripheral nervous system. So, all your sensory neurons outside of your... So, so being a neuroscientist is. So you've got mate. You've know, got a you've, thing now. Every time you say it, you have to make a, a massive effort, don't you? Okay. So being a neuroscientist. No, so went wrong. Not, so being a neuroscientist. <laughs> I can't do it. You've made it a thing. This is uh, the cell's not working. Brain freeze. So ne- neuroscientism. <laughs> oh, what area do you specialise in then? Because you just mentioned like four or five. So my expertise is cell biology in terms of... So I would say that I trained as a molecular cell biologist and then I moved into neuroscience by working on neurodegenerative diseases. So particularly in my lab, we work on Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease and a form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. These are biggies, Dr. Ryan. Yeah, so I work in an institute where that's what we do. We combine basic scientists like myself, which is what clinicians call research scientists and clinical scientists. Um, so we work together to try and understand neurodegenerative diseases from the point of what happens in genetic mutations, what happens in cells, and then all the way through to clinics. And then the clinicians that we work with deliver clinical trials. I've got so many questions here, Joe. So, so these are like... You, you're learning or trying to work out why we get these conditions or why people get these different conditions. Yeah, so it's a puzzle, right? The, what interests us is what is going wrong. And if we can understand that, then we can develop treatments. Um, also understand what happens earlier in disease so we can catch it sooner. At the moment, there are no real sort of treatments for most neurodegenerative diseases. So the goal is to kind of identify what goes wrong early and then we can screen for drugs, identify drugs that we can treat people with. These are all horrific diseases, Joe, aren't they? Awful. Horrific diseases, and one of the reasons, Dr. Ryan, they feel horrific to us on the outside is that we don't seem to understand them and we can't seem to predict who they might affect. Yes, so one of the big things is prediction. Um, So we look for things called biomarkers. So one of the things we do in my lab is we work with fruit flies, so Drosophila, and we use them to model diseases and we look at things that go wrong, which we can then translate into people. Um, So we look for things that go wrong that can be used as a biomarker to detect. So one of the things we do is we look at vision. So one of the things that happens in Parkinson's disease is you have what's called contrast sensitivity. So for example, like you go into a bright room and you can't deal with the bright light. So people with Parkinson's often have that as a symptom other than the motor symptoms, so like the shaking, which people commonly see. But that seems to occur very early in disease. And we've modelled this in our fruit fly models. And now we're working with the clinic so that we can basically put people in front of screens, look at their visual system and detect whether they may or may not have Parkinson's really early on. Forgive me for this next line of questioning, but fruit flies. Yep. Now, I've heard of using pigs for, like, transplants, heart transplants and other shit. I've heard of using 
other, in fact, mainly pigs, for like surgeries, tendon reconstructions and stuff like that because there's a lot of similarities between human and pig. What in the fuck is similar between human and fruit fly? Yeah, so good question. Probably the main question we get. So actually, in my pocket, I have some fruit fly. What? Don't get your... Hey, yeah. He's just... Oh! <laughs> Joe, look, he's brought out a little pot. So these are what we work on. How many... Look, we've got all these little fruit flies in here. There must be... Well, they, they need to stop is that, moving. Is that two tubes? Can I have the other one? We've got Thank some you. brown stuff, about an inch of brown stuff that looks a little bit like fudge or shit. Is that fudge? Is it fruit shit? It's essentially a yeast jelly... How much to eat some, Joe? Sorry, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> How much? Yeah. I'd eat it for nothing. I just want to try it. It looks quite yummy. So, uh, the question, right? So, the similarities. So, Sorry, before you get on, <laughs> I had no idea this is what a fruit fly is. I'm yeah, looking at most these... people think they're big flies, right? They're tiny I little these things, fucking Joe. big things that go around me. Yeah, so these are the ones that you find buzzing around your wine. Oh, yeah, I do half. How long do these, these yeah. little fellas live for? Under good conditions, they'll live sort of 90 days. Oh, so one of the advantages that is, so three months period, if we want to study age-related disorders, we can do so in an animal model, so what we call a model organism that allows us to look at them over its lifetime. Whereas if you say a lot of people work on mice models, mice can live two, three years, that's a very long time in research, um, and things like pig models and others. The advantage of the fruit fly is genetics, so it seems kind of convoluted why we'd use a fruit fly. So they started being used in research in sort of the early 1900s when people wanted to test Darwin's theories of evolution. So by 1857, something like that, he published The Origin of Species. And people wanted to test in a lab setting. But you want something that you can look at lots of generations of a single animal, right? Because the idea is that selection pressures, you have a mutation in an animal that gives it a selective advantage and that allows it to evolve and that evolution occurs over many, many generations to generate new species, simplistically. Fruit flies, you can look at a lot of generations, and people working on these in the early 1900s, a guy called Thomas Hunt Morgan, it was the first discovery that inheritance, so your characteristics, you can get from your parents. It's done through genes. Before that, we didn't really understand that mechanism of inheritance it comes through genetics and through genes. And that all came from flyers. And because that's been done for so many years now, the toolbox of genetics that we can use is really advanced. And in my lab, we have mutations in lots of genes. So we have about 400 different types of fly. Each that has a different mutation that causes a different neurodegenerative disease or is something that we're looking at to try and cure diseases. Just looking at these fruit flies in here, Joe, Dr. Ryan has talked about the similarities there between us and fruit flies. Just looking at these 30 little fruit flies, trying to work out which one's the Joe Marler one. Have a look. What do you think? Which one's? Which one do you fill a bomb with? You're a helmet. It's that one that hasn't moved from the food <laughs> <laughs> at the bottom. It's quite a few who are doing as their name suggests and flying. And it's just one who's just sitting there on the... <laughs> Just eating. On his face in the brown stuff. For fuck's sake. And he's got a very low leg lift as he occasionally makes his way across to a new patch. Excellent. And hunched wings has he got? Yeah, just the thing. So one of the things about flies is when people identify new genes in the fly world, they get to name them and people use stupid names, which in other sort of fields people don't. So there's some interesting ones like there's a fly that can't process alcohol properly and they're called cheap date. Uh, (laughs) But what, hang on, hang on. Why would a fly need to process <laughs> alcohol? Well, they not eat rotten it? fruit. So in the wild, oh. they'll live in rotten fruit and they process, they've probably got better alcohol tolerance than some people. Are they half cut, those fruit flies, all the time? <laughs> they do get drunk. <laughs> they just fuck off. No wonder they're right. not flying very well, look at them. Oh. Back to that, when you talked about the generations, it's great. So that sort of helped me understand a bit more. Obviously, you go with flies because their lifespan is shorter, so you, you get more generations in as opposed to waiting for a, a pig to die after five, six years or whatever. But how do you know that those fruit flies, in terms of like hereditary or what they're passing on down, are related to that fruit fly? That is, do you know what I mean? How, how do you know that... Mummy fruit fly, daddy fruit fly. So in the lab, we do lots of experiments where we cross different flies together. So one might have a genetic mutation that we know causes Parkinson's, and one might have a genetic mutation in something else. And we 
selectively and controlled manner cross them together. So one of the things that you'll hear if you find a load of people that work in Fruit Fly Labs is they'll be talking about collecting virgins. Hang on. So we have to collect female flies that haven't mated with their siblings, right? So all these flies <laughs> together. Hang on a minute. How on earth do you, can you work out how a fruit fly <laughs> has had sex or not? So, flies have a life cycle where they have like a larval form and then they pupate and then they come out as an adult. So, when they come out of their pupa, they won't mate with another fly for about eight to ten hours. So, we know that if you collect... Plenty hard to get. Yeah. So, if you pick fly within that sort of window you know that it's a virgin fly and you can you can look at them they've got different characteristics males and females so we can pick them and we can cross them what are the, but, what are the characteristics you're looking out for so essentially just the genitalia look different on the outside what's a what's a fruit fly's genital so males have like a grasper a they, grasper they physically grasp onto the female so she can't shake him off I'm not sure that's playing on this so, day and age, is it? Well, I don't know. Clearly, in the fruit fly world, but what and what 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 has a female fruit fly got for genitalia? So there's just more like, visibly rounded, and so they have an ovipositor as well, right? Because they lay what? eggs. Ovipositor. So What's they lay an eggs. The part where the eggs are laid, right? Like a little tube. Never seen that, Joe. An ovipositor. Yeah. I've never seen one like that. I don't know why I'm getting all bashful about fruit flies' <laughs> genitalia. <laughs> This has never happened to me before. Oh, grasper. Okay, so that's what you worked out. My next question is, are you saying that fruit flies get Parkinson's? Are you saying that fruit flies get dementia, get MND? What, like? Yeah, so we can control their genetics so that we can make mutations in genes that cause Parkinson's disease and then they develop essentially what we call a phenotype, so a symptom that is like those diseases. So they might show motor phenotypes, so inability to walk properly, or they might show memory defects. So flies actually, whilst they have a much smaller brain than you or I, so a human brain has about 86 billion nerve cells in it, and an adult fly brain only has about 200,000. But they're still capable of showing things like fear, learning a memory. How do you see that? They're tiny. I so, mean, the ones in this thing here are about, about three millimetres long. A lot of time spent looking down microscopes. How do you keep them still? Because these little geezers, apart from the Joe Marler one down the bottom, are all over the shop. So we anaesthetise them, we just give them a blast of CO2 and they fall asleep. <laughs> What's going on in this lab? Well, so one of the things with flies is we are, most animal research is covered by the Home Office, right? So that you have to have a licence to do it. They don't class flies as animals. So a lot of research that we want to do, so if you wanted to research things like pain, you can without restrictions of a lot of paperwork with the government. So, right, let's say that I work for Peter and I've heard about the way you treat fruit flies. I've heard about you actually changing DNA and infecting or changing it so that the fruit flies get these diseases for our human benefit so we've got a better understanding or we're trying to get a better understanding of our diseases. How on earth is that fair? Say we didn't have fruit flies and you were doing it to rabbits or or even mice to a degree, like that's all we had to do, there's going to be an uproar. Is there not an uproar because it's fruit flies? Well, th there will always be people that see any form of animal research as wrong. So there is a balance. So what we try and do in our research is to minimise the use of animals and minimise the use of higher order animals. So we use as few mice as we can. Then we use Drosophila fruit fly models as an alternative, but we still try and use as few of those. So it's about approaches that minimise the use of animal models, as well as so we use patient also cells from people who live with these neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so we have the brain bank of tissue that people have donated. So we combine all these different approaches to understand neurodegenerative diseases. Is it true, Dr. Ryan, that you need to keep these fruit flies well exercised? So one, <laughs> of, one of the projects in my lab is funded by the My Name's Doddy Foundation. Yeah. So we are looking at the link between strenuous physical activity and motor neuron disease. So I'm sure you're well aware, right, with Doddy and Rob Burrows, there are links, um, and in footballers as well. We're not saying that if you do a lot of exercise, you will get motor neuron disease. 
that's certainly not what we're saying. What we're saying is there is there is evidence to suggest that if you are genetically predisposed to get motor neuron disease, you may show an increased risk or develop symptoms sooner if you are involved in strenuous physical activity. So Why? we're talking sort of elite level sport. Why is that? So well, this is what we're trying to understand. So there are various things that might happen at a cellular level that cause stresses that feed into whatever's going wrong that causes motor neuron disease. So one of the things that we're kind of looking at at the moment is what's called hypoxia. So essentially reduction in blood oxygenation. So if you're doing intense exercise or so firefighters as well, there are occupational risks, increased risk of motor neuron disease. So we think that that hypoxic stress on the body can then uh, interact with pathways that are already causing motor neuron disease to occur. So in my lab, we are busy exercising flyers and then seeing if we take models that have mutations that cause the disease and then we exercise them, whether they get worse. And then if we find that out, we can then manipulate other pathways, so look at other genes to see if it makes it better or worse and kind of reduce that stress with the, the goal. So this project is joint with another group that work in human cell models. Um, so we take skin cells from people with motor neuron disease or uh, healthy people, and we convert them into nerve cells or glial cells, which is another type of cell in the brain that support nerve cells. And then we can look at those in a dish, so they're from people with disease. And then we can also work with clinicians who are doing uh, essentially like um, questionnaires of people uh, to look at how much exercise they did and whether they developed motor neuron disease. This is incredible. And it's obviously a serious bit of research. But I am interested in how do you define strenuous exercise that a fruit fly can do? Do you know what I mean? Like what? Yeah, we as humans, we go, right, okay, well, we could do a bleep test or, you know, do some really heavy weights or all these sort of things. What constitutes stressful exercise for a fruit fly? Yeah, so we have an understanding of the degree of activity they go through a day. So they have what's called a circadian rhythm which is where you they have a peak of activity early in the day and then they do a, quite a lot of siestering throughout the day and then they have a peak of activity at the end of the day. So they're, like, they're, they're Spanish? They're yeah, Spanish fruit flies. Spanish flies. European fruit flies. Um, we, what we do is we put them in a, like an exercise wheel that means that they have to keep walking. Hang on. But they fly. <laughs> Why don't they just fly out of it? Well, so we keep them in the tubes and they don't actually do a lot of flying. A lot of the time, you'll actually drop a tube on the floor by accident and they don't escape and fly off. They just probably fucking shag because they've been in this exercise thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we exercise them and then we see what's going on. Um, the other thing we're looking at at the moment is using, there's a technique called optogenetics where you can control a nerve cell using light. So we want to basically turn on nerve cells in the fly's brain that cause them to walk or run so that we can basically make them run. They don't have any ability to resist it because you're controlling their nerves, so, so we can make them run around. Are we further behind, Dr. Ryan, with neurodiseases than we are with physical diseases in terms of how they work and how we understand how we can treat them? So, historically, things like... So I work a lot with the Alzheimer's Society and Alzheimer's Research UK. So historically, things like dementias have been massively underfunded compared to, say, cancer, because a lot of people will consider that, oh, it's dementia, it's just someone's getting old. So the figures used to be something like, you're 10 times more likely to get dementia, but there's <coughs> 10 times less funding in dementia. So research-wise, we probably are behind, but in recent years we've made massive steps forward and gene therapies are becoming a much more realistic approach. There were some big scares early days with gene therapy, some studies in a few countries where people died early on and it really put a halt on gene therapy approaches. But it's the same with things like GM, right? You have a scare moment and then everything slows down. But we are definitely making massive strides lately. And there's a huge community of researchers who are striving for study and treatment of these diseases. So I know roughly, I know a lot about MND, but I also know very little if that makes sense, as in I see it a lot and with the My Name's Doddy Foundation and everything with Rob Burrow and and a friend of mine, Ed Slater, who um, was recently diagnosed as well. So I'm aware of it, but I, I don't know what the fuck actually MND is. Yeah. 
the same with Parkinson's and the same with de- dementia. So, and, and I'm sure there's listeners out there as well that d- don't know the ins and outs of it. Can you just give us a little bit more detail into those diseases yeah, and what so, they do? Yeah, so the three in my lab are motor neuron disease. So motor neuron disease is a degeneration that occurs in your motor neurons, so upper motor neurons, so from the brain to the spinal cord, and then your lower motor neurons, which is spinal cord to your muscles. And essentially degeneration within those specific cell types that mean you end up with muscle wasting and it's usually quite a severe progression so once you're diagnosed it's quite severe parkinson's disease is more a disease of motor function so you'll see people have tremors what we call gait problems so difficulty with their walking patterns and things like that they have lots of other symptoms that are associated again with nerve cells that control motor so they actually have gut function issues and eye issues but it's the the bodily motor functions that people see as the the major visible sign and then frontotemporal dementia is an interesting one so it's it's actually we now believe it's a spectrum of a disorder with motor neuron disease so you can have a mutation and it can cause either of those two diseases and frontotemporal dementia is more of a, a change in personality so your frontal lobe of your brain is heavily involved in who you are. So the classic example of this was back in, I think, the 1800s, there was a guy called Phineas Gage. I don't know if you've heard this story. So he was a railway worker when they used to use like metal spikes and tamping explosives, and it went off, and the metal railway spike went through up under his cheek and out through his frontal lobe, which you would have expected would kill him, but it didn't. It just essentially in a sense, lobotomized him. And it took out his frontal lobe and his personality just changed. He went from being relatively mild-mannered person to he developed gambling problems and issues with aggression. And you often see this in people who develop frontotemporal dementia or dementia associated with damage in the frontal lobe. So like my nan had some vascular dementia, but she had that area of the brain. Her personality changed completely. It's interesting to understand how single mutations can cause two very different diseases. So that's one of the big focuses of what we do, is trying to understand what causes this variation. Because without knowing that, then how do we treat diseases? That one, that last one, the frontal, what is it called? Frontotemporal dementia. Frontotemporal dementia. Begs the question like about personality. How much of it is chemical or genetic, or actually how much of it is learnt? Or is it both? It is learnt. And then once you lose that part of it where you've got all the memories of how you learnt how you wanted to be, that's gone. So then you just revert back to... to uh, it's just fucking baffling my mind, all of this. It's an amazing question, right? So at a physical level, everyone's brain is essentially the same, right? It's just a big squishy organ, but everyone is different. That personality, who you are, is the different connections in all those nerve cells within your brain, your personality, your behaviour, everything that makes you who you are. There's some genetic basis for differences in kind of physical differences, but your consciousness, your mind, it's something we don't truly understand. This is what got me into neuroscience over other... I went to university and did biology and I was interested in immunology and all sorts, but the opportunity came for me to work for a company that worked on neuroscience and I thought, well, what's more interesting than the brain? Joe, I don't know about you, but I've got a, a million questions about brains. So why don't we have a little cheeky break here? You can sip from your giant water bottle to rehydrate your brain and we shall come back after some adverts. Perfect. Right, those were the adverts. Dr. Ryan, so many questions about brains. But let's start off with the one that we touched on just before that break. So if Joe's brain were to come out... This is quite weird. <laughs> it's come out of his coming head. out? If we were to see Joe's brain, I'm guessing it would look similar to my brain. Which bit of Joe's brain is making Joe Joe? That's a difficult question. So as we said, kind of the frontal lobe's involved in a lot of personality, but then you've got areas of the brain that are all your memories... What, where's that? What, how's my brain split up into? Is it split up in a particular way? As in, is everyone's brain the classic? I'm thinking of this like four way, where you just quartered, quartered. <laughs> <laughs> where it's like sp- split directly down the middle, and then you get a quarter. Ha- <laughs> <laughs> split in half, then half again. It's a quarter. Go, <laughs> Ryan. So you have 
fundamentally, you have different lobes of the brain. So you have the frontal lobe at the front. You have the temporal lobes, which are at the side, and you have two. So as you say, it's separated by a midline. So yeah. there's a region called the corpus callosum. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. And then you have uh, the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe. And then within there, there's lots of different regions that are involved in different functions, and there's bits that we still don't really know what they do. So essentially, everyone's brain is similar and between different species there's a lot of conservation of what the brain is like although structures are different in so you know that thing we tried this out at lunchtime joe didn't we and i went both ways <laughs> so to speak ryan that thing you're meant to do when you're trying to access memories and your eye your eyes either look up to the right or look up to the left what's it meant to be because mine do both <laughs> So there is a degree of separation of the sort of people talk about like are you left hemisphere or are you right yeah. hemisphere. So things like your eyes actually the connections kind of cross hemispheres. So it's it's neither. So yeah. Or both. There've been studies where they cut the corpus callosum the bit that joins the two hemispheres and then so you need to talk to a psychologist about this but I think they they split they put something in front of them so that only one half of the room they could see out one eye and one out of the other eye and then they like showed them a banana and if it's in one hemisphere where it doesn't go to the right language centre they can't say what it is but their other hand might pick it up so your brain is talking across but every part of your brain is communicating every cell in your body communicates what? so people think of it as like this defined system but there's studies that have shown now that actually even what's called your gut biota. So the microbes that live in your gut release signals that influence your brain. So you can't look... This is why we like to work in flies as a whole organism rather than cells in a dish, right? Because it, a, a whole animal, a whole organism is more complex than just a few types of cells. Everything is talking. How far off are we from finding cures for these diseases? Because I remember back in COVID times and how quickly they got the, the vaccine ready to help treat COVID. Why, why is it so easy to treat something like that quickly and not these diseases or these type of diseases? So COVID was a massive lesson in what can happen with everyone working together, investment, and really pushing something. And we've actually seen that in the field of sort of neurogenesis diseases, that there has been, I think, before the ice bucket challenge... People didn't really know about MND, right? And there's been more and more. And Did you take part in that, Tom? Do you remember that? I do remember it, yeah. It was fucking all the craze, mm. wasn't it? It was a video pass-on thing, but and it was great to spread the word. Obviously, not quite as good as donating a shit ton of money to uh, research, but to actually spread the word of MND. But back to how far off are we? Yeah, so recently, there's been some massive discoveries recently, so I said about this drug was first drug for MND. So What's it called? Tof, tof? It's called Tofacin. I think they've actually given it a new name under licensing. But So that treats a form of MND associated with one specific mutation. But it shows that it can be done. And there's been a lot of news lately about drugs for Alzheimer's disease that clear a protein that we believe causes dementia called amyloid. So these amyloid clearance drugs are pushing through clinical trials and have made a massive step so there has there seems to have been a bit of a turning point and we are really pushing forward and i think gene therapies have come forward as a, a, an option to use so uh, theoretically if you show that you can use gene therapy to treat one sort of type of mutation there's real hope that mutations that cause a similar effect you can use a gene therapy to treat those as well so there's been a number of different gene therapy approaches that have been pushed forward recently so some to treat um, what we call neurodevelopmental disorders in children so there's these cases where replacement of the gene has led from sort of toddlers that couldn't walk had a very poor uh, outlook are now walking so there's real hope that these approaches and what we now know can actually transform but we need more funding that's clearly we pushed the government for increased funding in MND and in dementia and it's what we're really hoping comes forward Joe do people inside rugby talk about MND and the high risks associated with or apparently associated with intense elite sport they might do I don't I tend to just put my head under a rock 
and ignore it, any any connection whatsoever, because it scares the hell out of me. I see Doddy, Rob Burrow, and and even seeing them to a degree, I'm a, it's a rugby family, but it's still a detachment because they weren't my era, they're not my teammates, something like that. But then when a teammate of mine was diagnosed with MND, it then hit home even more, like, fucking hell. But I can't work out personally, and you'll be able to help out a bit more, and you already have touched on it. Like, Is there a genuine connection between playing rugby or exercising to a degree or the contact nature of the sport that causes an increased chance of MND? Or is it just because I'm in the rugby bubble that I've seen people, and actually this is a normal amount of people to get MND in the real world, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that we think that these people who might be affected by exercise are already genetically predisposed to get the disease. And is, it, is, it, is it in the same way as like cancers that you hear of people that smoke 40 fags a day all their life and never get cancer? Someone who's never touched a cigarette in their life dies of lung cancer because they're genetically predisposed to getting cancer and actually... Yeah, I think it's important to remember that and I think it's important that Yes, so these people are in your community and also they are more maybe publicly in the limelight. But every day we see people from all walks of life get different neurodegenerative diseases and the chances are still relatively rare. So you can't live your life thinking that that's the risk you might get hit by a bus tomorrow. So it's I, I don't think people should be worried. There are, of course, there are... are other risks in all jobs so we work in labs with really harmful chemicals you bang your head into people all day like it's there are risks in most jobs but you probably got bigger risks actually from pollution in terms of other health aspects right right man what can we do let's say both joe and i want to supercharge and also protect our brains from this point onwards what are the things that we could be doing so yeah this question that comes up a lot, right? What can I do to live a better life? And I think everyone knows what the answers are. There's there's so many studies that show healthy diet. So there's something in the news recently about improved Mediterranean diet and dementia. And people have thought about this for years that actually it just makes sense. You're living a healthy diet. You've got a balance. You're not just eating one type of food. You're not loading on a load of fat. A degree of exercise. You need Everyone needs exercise. Everyone knows that elite exercise, whatever it is, can damage your body in all sorts of ways. If you go running on hard roads, you can damage your knees. It's like it's just a balance. And I think that's key. This episode is sponsored by the following beautiful people. Red Rory Herring, the Carvery Toby Mersh, Walk On, Walk On, Andy Walker, Double Denim Sally Wenham, the Duracell Bunny Rob Giroux, Nibble, nibble, Stuart Kibble. Here's to you, Tom Robinson. Dave the Wily Fox. The director, Tom Anderson. The Windy Rhino. And John Donger Harrowing. Amazing Gracie Bucknell. And the Yeasty Boy, Daniel Beers Baker. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Show. Become an official sponsor. Get bonus content. And grow the show today. Dr. Ryan, can we, do we know why some people have brains that work in different ways? So why some people are thought of as creative people and some people are thought of as more mathematical? Is there something that's going on in our brains that's dictating that? Yeah, so people always used to say like, oh, you're left-brained creative or like you're left-handed and therefore it comes with creativity. From my view, at like a cellular level, I think that's probably bullshit, but I don't know enough you'd probably have to ask a psychologist who's uh looked into that area more but but yeah. you reckon from a on a cellular thing you could train your brain to do certain things so if you weren't creative and you started trying to be creative your cells would react to that would they uh, yeah i don't know i don't know i think perhaps everyone has the same platform when you're born but a lot of it would be environmental but there's a huge number of things that we do know are 
sort of imprinted sort of genetically. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know you specialise in the in the fruit flies, but have you touched a human brain? I have touched bits of human brain, never a whole one. What like as in how big a bit are we talking? Are we talking about a small bit that's under a microscope, or are we talking like a decent chunk that you could finger? You, or you could we touch don't with your finger, finger the brains. That's <laughs> frowned upon. <laughs> I mean, like, just... <laughs> I mean, the he, way that you've... How's he turned... Dr. Ryan turned that round. No, I didn't, didn't turn because that. your left hand, you were putting making a circle. Yeah, like, with a, your... like a Petri dish. A what dish? A Petri dish? Petri? Petri? Yeah. Petri dish? Ha! <laughs> ha! Fuck you! You're baking a science man! You're making a hole with your left hand and yeah, then you put your forefinger repeatedly in the hole. Not in it, on the top, just like that. It's gone in a bit. Okay, no, slightly. it hasn't. Well, it's because I'm squidging the brain down. Mm. So you've never squidged a brain down with your finger? We've. That's a yes. Well, yeah, sort of, because we, we grind them up into like a solution so that we can then look at the You've cell. You've ground you... up human brain into a solution? Uh, yeah, so we take little bits of tissue and then we basically, what we call, lyse the cells, so we break all the cells open so that we can take out all the proteins to look at them and extract How do you DNA do that? You do, you do what? How do Lies. So you use essentially chemicals and mechanical force to rupture cells open to release the proteins that are inside them, but then we also take out the DNA that's inside them so that we can look at genetic changes. So we do that like on a daily basis in flies, but you can do it in all sorts of tissue. Are these... Obviously, people that have donated their brains, you haven't just gone and stolen Yeah, we don't shit. just take it off people on the bus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But is DNA a thing? Yes, DNA is a thing. No, 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 like a touchable thing. Well, yeah, so actually you can do these experiments we're doing with kids in outreach where if you extract enough DNA and then you put it in something that makes it kind of um, aggregate, you can pick it up in long strings. What? So it is actually, it's not this thing, I see, I always see these clips of these like round string bits with, uh, that's uh, what is it like? Helix. A, what? DNA helix. I've just said a word that I didn't actually know what it meant. <laughs> helix. So this like helter skelter thing with yeah. round dots on it all. Yeah. So Bobbles. That's a real life thing. Yeah. So each cell has that backbone in that helix structure with these what we call bases. So it's the the code for life, right? And it is a physical thing. We extract DNA so that we can then do experiments on it in the same way we can extract individual proteins. So every cell in your body is made of lots of different proteins and we take them out and we run them on gels basically so you can look at them and see if you have more of that protein than Tom does. You do eat more protein than me. You had a three meat dish in the restaurant at lunchtime. I know, I'm quite full actually. Mm. Actually it was more carbs than protein. You had some prawn in one of the dishes, didn't you, in the papaya salad? So you're saying there's DNA in everything I eat? Well, living things. What? There's, some, there's something about Ryan's expression where... I think he's just realised how little you and I <laughs> understand <laughs> about the things the end, that to Dr. Like, Ryan are very straightforward. Really? Right, people talk, Dr. Ryan, about someone who's got a big brain. If you are above average intelligence, is your brain actually any bigger? Not necessarily bigger in terms of weight. So one of the things that makes the human brain potentially more... So you might have a similar sized brain to another animal, right? But what gives it complexity is the folds in it so it's oh. surface area so if you look at the surface of a brain it's got lots of folds in it so that gives it a greater surface area so there is a, a relationship between that and kind of intelligence but I don't think between people there's much difference so you could have a big brain and be less intelligent than someone with a technically smaller brain yeah I would have thought so well because if you had a big brain but there was no folds in it a fold free brain like a smooth brain yeah you're just thick as fuck yeah whereas if you've got someone who's got loads of rolls and folds <laughs> like both on the inside and out I would I would think that that suggests look yeah. I mean that? you're wearing a black t-shirt it's quite slimming but the way you were tucking it into your folds under my your folds fold, yeah. see that it's quite impressive isn't it you just meant brain folds did you yeah fuck these are some fun facts about your brain there's 60% of the human brain is made of what substance? Tom. Water. No. Ugh. That's 70%. Actually, well, that's that makes sense. It's <laughs> 130, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's fat. Yes, there's a lot of lipids in the brain, so nerve cells are sort of ensheathed by a fat in sheathed. In sheathed. In sheathed. Wrapped by Shakespearean myelin. Isn't it? So you have like myelin. So I don't know if you remember from your textbooks at school, you have like 
the neuron with the long projection around it, you have these blocks and then these gaps. And so that's called myelin and that's quite fatty. Fucking, I got... So essentially it's best to have a fat-folded brain. (laughs) Fact number two, Joe. Your brain isn't fully formed until what age? (sighs) Dr. Ron, I'll go first to basically give you something to knock down. I reckon it would change. They reckon you learn way more in your first two years, don't they, than you do in any other spell in your life. But Do they? Yeah, but I'm quite vague on that, as you can tell, because I don't know what I'm talking about. Something must happen to your brain during puberty because a lot of teenagers turn into twats. So I would say your brain is not fully formed until you're 17. Oh. 24? Until 25. Brain development begins from the back of the brain and works its way to the front. Therefore, your frontal lobes, which control planning and reasoning, are the last to strengthen and structure connections. So they talk about before that age, you thinking... Parts of your brain aren't fully developed, so you are potentially slightly more irrational, or you you make decisions more with your heart, sort of like that kind of not actually with your heart, but shouldn't say that as a neuroscientist. Um, <laughs> but in, although technically, making... on a cellular level, your heart is connected to your brain, so yeah, technically, so, yeah. every cell is communicating to each other. So therefore, you are making decisions with your heart at all times. Learning something every day. <laughs> Fact number three, Gemma. Your brain's storage capacity is considered what? What sort of question is that? It's so open-ended. <laughs> I know. Right, say the question again. Your brain's storage capacity is considered what? Fucking awesome. Because it remembers so much. Close. Unlimited? I don't know. Virtually unlimited. Nice. Is that a point for both? Uh, Okay, okay, your answer could be... Yeah, okay, fine, one each. Research suggests the human brain consists of 86 billion neurons. Each neuron... Neurons. What am I saying? You're back to neurons. Okay. 86 billion neurons. <laughs> each neuron forms connections to other neurons, which could add up to one quadrillion, which is a thousand trillion, connections. Over time, these neurons can combine, <laughs> increasing storage capacity... However, in Alzheimer's disease, for example, many neurons can become damaged and stop working, particularly affecting memory. Any more facts for us, Joe? A piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand. Yes. See that? You've made a a shape with your forefinger, which is like a rock. A grain of sand. Yeah, grain of sand contains how many neurons to the nearest 10? Neurons are surely very small. Two point, what, to the nearest 10? Mm-hmm. I was going to say 2.3 million, I'll back off on that one. 118. Dr. Ryan, do you want to have a go? No idea. I would say like in the tens of thousands. It contains 100,000 neurons. Why did you say to the nearest <laughs> 10 as such a stitch-up? <laughs> Sorry, mate, that's how the question's written. Is it? In my mind. Yeah. <laughs> in your brain. <laughs> Dr. Ryan, it's been fantastic having you and your little fruit fly friends in the studio. I'm just picking up the test tube here. The, the Joe Marlon fruit fly looks like he's in a fruit fry coma. He's just lying. <laughs> Look at him, Joe. He's just lying in the middle of the fruit juice poo. And he's on his... He's just got his face in it. He's not moved for... Is he dead? He might be. You see him? Don't shake it, Joe. I'm not shaking it. The little man. Look, Do you name them? No, it's too many. Yeah, but I guess you could, like, name a tube. What's CS been? Uh, it's just a wild type, so a control strain. It's called Cantoness. These guys are called shits. They're called shits? <laughs> Why? They're not very nice fruit flies. So they have a temperature-sensitive mutation in a uh, gene called Shibiri. So if you hold them, like, if your hands are warm and you hold okay. I'm gonna them for long enough, fruit flies. they will paralyse. Oh, no, I'm not putting it down. <laughs> sorry, boys, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll recover what's... afterwards. Oh, okay. And what's what's the these ones got special about them? So they're just like uh, a strain that's similar to those you find in the wild. So they're our wild type. Oh, actually, I did think that about them. That the, those the shit ones that they were quite like. You thought they were lazy, but that's yeah, just... laxadaisical. Well, they were in yes. my pocket, which was quite warm. So they were probably on the verge of paralysis. Hang on, <clears throat> my last before we finish up, my last thing to you is: Have you seen Jurassic Park? Yeah. Jurassic World? Yeah. What about Jurassic Lost Kingdom? No. They do loads of genetic modifications on not just dinosaurs, but loads of other shit. And it goes wrong with locusts. So instead of like your normal size locust being, okay, a couple of inches, to actually like the size of a small dog, and they would like ravage 
all the crops. What you're doing to these flies, genetic mutations, is that right? Yeah. Is there no risk at all that you fuck up one day and you genetically mutate Marla fly into the size of a cat? <laughs> challenging. So, yeah, the GM work is tightly regulated, right? So what we do, most of what we do makes them sicker. So if they get out, they're not going to survive. But there is regulations on what you can do. So people put various things like tetanus toxin genes into flies. So you've got to make sure that you put the bit that causes... So we use it to sort of silence nerve cells, but you don't want the bit that allows it to get into cells if someone was to, like, swallow that fly. So it is tightly regulated and of course but it is possible theoretically. oh yeah if you wanted to be like mad scientist you could probably do something so just to clarify this because this is an important point if you had no moral or ethical framework and no oversight from a regulatory authority it would be possible to have a cat-sized mile of fruit fly i don't know how but i imagine you could uh play around on that bombshell fuck fucking hell Dr. Ryan, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Pleasure. Legend. How's your brain feeling, Joe? You've turned into a fruit fly. (laughs) As if you fucking stitched me up and got Dr. Ryan to bring a big fat fruit fly. Fruit fly, fruit fly. (laughs) A big fat fruit fly. What did I say? (laughs) Fruit fly. Fruit fly and stuff a load of sugar in him and then just say he's got him to go, oi, sit there or lie there <laughs> and look as much like this co-host as you can. You fucking stitch up. First of all, Dr. Ryan, he's doing some unbelievable thing. Gee, what he said to us as he was leaving casually. Zzz. Yeah, he said he could make you glow like a jellyfish. That was it. I said, <laughs> can, can, you, can you genetically change me? He was like... Yeah, probably. Um, Just take the glowing bit out of a glowing jellyfish and stick it in you, yeah, make you glow a bit. Make you glow, and I went, fuck, he said, yeah, but people want that sort of shit all the time, but they don't realise that you've got to sit under a lamp for an hour or two to actually make yourself glow. Well, seeing that Dr. Ryan has now left us, um, you've got a new pencil case in front of us, which is really nice. It's not Um, a pencil case. Isn't it? It's got a pencil case banding section in it. Yeah, that's for the pens and the pencils that you need, but I've also got uh, electrical adapters. In your pencil case. wires. It's not in a pencil case, because there's no rubbers in it. Okay, well, you could put a rubber in there. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make, Joe, is that because you've missed out on the opportunity of Dr. Ryan luminositing you, um, I could take either your sort of green highlighter here, your orange highlighter, or your pink highlighter, and I could just colour in your forearm. Is that easier, quicker, getting him back in? Because he's up north by now, he's on the train home. Come near me with one of my highlighters, (laughs) and we'll see who ends up coloured in. Filled in? I said, we'll see who ends up coloured in. Okay, and on that bombshell, Joe Marler, I'll see you next time. Yeah. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.